Hello, and welcome to another episode of the B2B Founders Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today's episode is a little bit different in the fact that I'm not interviewing a founder and breaking down how they were able to join the 5% Club. On this episode, I have one of my favorite B2B subject matter experts join the program, and we're going to discuss how you can strategically and tactically grow your business. Sangram Vajare has quickly built a reputation as one of the leading minds in B2B marketing. He's the co-founder and CMO of high-growth company Terminus. Sangram is also a multiple-time author, which titles include Account-Based Marketing for Dummies, and ABM is B2B. He's also a speaker, podcast host, and known globally as the godfather of account-based marketing. You know, maybe that's just my title, but definitely world-renowned and expert within the B2B marketing space. So happy to have him on the program today. We have shared opinion on you know, why sales and marketing is broken, or as Sangram says, it sucks, and how this can be an advantage to a startup and get into you know, how to avoid some of the common issues. In this episode, we also discuss the difference between vitamins and painkillers and why that matters, why customer success could or should be your first hire, don't hire C-level roles until your revenues level is over $8 million, or why doers are much more critical when trying to get past that million-dollar threshold. You know, customer stories should be the foundation of your go-to-market strategy and why Sangram believes that hiring in two makes sense. I know that seems like a lot of information, but this was a high-quality episode with a lot of really great value. So that we discuss and a lot more, and I really think you'll enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, if you listen to this podcast regularly, please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. And now on to the interview. Hi, Sangram. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Brad. Happy to be here. Oh, no, it's definitely my pleasure. And you know, I've been looking forward to, to having this conversation. Now, I may be selling it too far, but I don't think so. Being the, the godfather of account-based marketing or ABM, I just think it's such an important topic. So I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to uh, you know, help educate our, our audience. So maybe to just get started really quick, you know, let the folks know what you're working on today. I know you're kind of that dual roles, evangelist, author, Chief Marketing Officer, maybe just a, a quick overview of, of what you're working on today, and then we'll, we'll get into the questions. Yeah, sure. So right now, I'm the co-founder and chief evangelist of Terminus. Uh, we started about five years ago, so it's always interesting. The first year, we were like three co-founders in a kind of makeup shop trying to just kind of get things going. I, don't, I think we even rented this one space where only two people can sit. So I would always sit outside because I didn't really need a dev development setup or anything like that. And it's super interesting. Now we're about 250 people. And it's funny in the last five years, never thought that I will end up writing two books, start a movement called Flip My Funnel and ABM around that. That has over 100,000 people in it. And it has taught a lot and built a lot of character in the process of building a company from three co-founders to over 250 people now. Yeah, well, one, congratulations on all that. And, and if folks aren't familiar with you, I'll add, definitely add it all to the show notes. But make sure you are consuming Sangram's content. He's got a live, what would you call it, a live yeah, I'm, I'm show on Monday morning. Yeah, I'm, doing, I'm calling it like office hours with Sangram because there's a lot going on, especially right now. People are not in the office. So I thought that could be kind of interesting and funny to think about. 
but I have people coming in and pitch their business ideas and uh, marketing or ABM or podcasting, all that kind of stuff. And we just talk and try to help because that's something that I think we all should do more. A hundred percent agree. And quite honestly, we could have had you on a guest and maybe we'll come back and circle back and have you guest as one of the founders that actually crossed the million dollar mark in, in the B2B space. And but I thought there would be more value in really talking about how founders of businesses looking to scale, right? We're trying to get to that million dollar mark. And, you know, one of the themes I've heard quite a bit is, you know, I, we're really good at growing through our network, right? I've got a friend and they're in this business they bought from us. That's great. But then they start to get stalled and, and I'll, I'll flip it over to you. But one of the things I hear quite a bit, well, we, we hired a couple of salespeople at that point versus maybe thinking about it from a, a slightly different perspective. So maybe to get us started, you know, what at a high level, what is your recommendation for the, these founders? And then we'll kind of dig into to some of the tactics. I've got almost two schools of thought on that, Brett. One is I think it has been taught a lot about this idea of product market fit, which I actually absolutely hate. I think it's really problem market fit. And I'll, I'll jump into that in a second. So that's one. And the second part of it is when you're hiring and when you're building a company that is sub million and you're trying to get to a million and we have gone to like, a, like we hit a million in the first year, we're fortunate enough to hit five in the second year and about like with another acquisition, 15 in the third year and then we kept going. But the first million was the hardest of all. And I think when I think about all of those things is like one advice that David Cummings gave us is that do not count a single dollar of revenue until you get something from someone you don't know. Mm, I love that. Right. So the second part is that, you know, don't count any dollars, any, if it's friendlies, if it's your network, actually it means nothing uh, unless somebody you don't know randomly and they are not buying it because they're going to tell you the real problem that your product is solving. So this one is like start focusing on the problem market fit. And the second is really figure out and get people outside of network and make that your number one goal, not inside the network, because inside the network is just going to give you a free pass. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such great advice. I'm actually a big fan of the, the problem solving network, right? I've always, I super simplify it, but you know, what problems are you solving for the customer? How do you solve it? And how do you solve it differently or and if you say better, then you better have clear evidence of, of how it's better. But, but you're right. I think that is a really common challenge for a lot of startups is they, they default to features and benefits and, you know, how, how you do it versus what you're actually solving for. So is that the first, first recommendation? Is, well, one, is that something you guys learned as you were going through the process? And two, you know, is that a good first step then is to figure out what problem you're solving? So, so in that, there's a big detail that I feel like most people miss. So a lot of people, when they think about problem market fit, they would go ahead and say, well, all right, we, here's the problems in our case for Terminus, less than 1% of the leads turn into customers. You don't want that. So let us help you drive more of your customers or future customers into real paying customers. Works fine. Great. We're hitting on the problem, which is that less than 1% of the leads turn into customers is not a good business and efficient model. Right. But that's not problem market fit. Problem market fit is more specifically saying, are there people in the market that actually are facing this exact problem? In our case, when we started to do our investor, like raising money and going all dog and pony shows, we were going all across, like San Francisco, everywhere. And I remember this constantly that, okay, well, great. Like, how big is your market? And we look at 
Well, look at Marketo and Pardot. It's a $3.5 billion market. Not really. Like just because they sold, you can't really sell. So it's crazy we raised money in the early days with that. But the problem market fit really came from the community that we built, which was Flip My Funnel. Right. So we ended up building a community, which is now, as we said, over 100,000 at that time. We said, you know what? We're going to bring all these people together in one place, not, not talk about Terminus, not make it about Terminus. Make it about the problem, which is that B2B marketing and sales sucks. It's not good. It's not efficient. So instead of talking about this one layer of like, hey, here's how Terminus does stuff, because we frankly didn't know exactly how we were going to go about and do it, which is right. most founders, they're, they're all figuring it out, is to say, hey, why not give this platform to all these people who are really good at talking about these things? So we invited these thought leaders, practitioners, even competitors for that matter, to be on the stage called Flip My Funnel and gave them a voice. And what happened was as a result of that, people would come back and ask us like, wait a minute, so what are you doing again? And then it's a better sales process because now we get to tell our side of the story. And that particular way of creating a problem market, which is now we knew that, oh, there are hundreds of people coming to this conference that we did in like five different cities in the first year in Atlanta, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, and all these cities. And we found out that the more we did it, the more people joined. And now there are about 1,500 people come to this conference every year, um, like physically, now virtually even more so. Right. What's interesting about all of that is that it clearly defined us and helped us recognize that this is truly a problem. And when you have massive community that is supporting that problem, then you know that you can build a product that can sustain you. So. To me, that's what it really means is to have a community around that. And one of the sayings that I've said is that without a community, you might simply be a commodity. Right. Right. And there are a lot of products, as you said earlier, is like faster, cheaper, better. Well, that's not a great business to be in. Um, you got to build a community. And I, one of the conversations we had with Brand Halligan, who's the CEO of HubSpot, he's one of the investors in Terminus. And I'm like, well, why did you build inbound? And why did you give it away? Why didn't you trademark it? And he's like the same thing. This is our greatest moat. Anybody who wants to go and compete with us, they can go and compete and start building product and features like us. But it will take a while for them to build a community of 20,000 raving fans. They have to climb that wall up and then come in. By that time, we'll be further along anyway. You think, think about Salesforce building Dreamforce. You think about Gainsight creating Pulse. You think about Drift creating Hypergrowth. You think about Terminus creating Flip My Funnel. I think we start, I started to see, this was like, I wish I would say, oh, we figured this out. Like almost two years later, when we had this going, somebody said that what you guys are doing is how categories are built. So the real number one question and really went in detail on that is, figure out a problem market fit by building a community because then you really know that there's a problem to be solved and then you can go and get it. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's so true. There's been a lot more conversation about community, or not community, but yes, community building, but also category creation and changing the conversation. And I'd love to get your perspective on, does that mean if you can't create a new category that there's no sense in starting the business? There's probably some in between, right? The ones that can create the category, like you guys are high flying and moving, you've created the, not only the community, the movement, the category, right? So if I'm a new founder thinking about how do I just get to a million dollars and now do I have to start an inbound conference or do I start this community? What's, 
your perspective on the best way to start thinking about it and building a plan, right? Because most yeah. of the folks I talk to don't have a plan. It's yeah. Yeah. we'll get there when we get there. It's hard. Well, one of the things that that's a great question, Brett. I I really appreciate the question because I think there's so many so much truth in that. You're in the as a as a founder, you're probably in the day-to-day weeds, you're creating order forms, you're probably on the sales call, you're also trying to hire people, and now you go and build a community that like sounds crazy and insane to do it and not even have your name on it, makes no sense. And I get it. And I would never recommend that to anybody uh, unless they truly believe in it, which is one of the reasons why in the last 20 years, even though there are 8,000 B2B MarTech solutions out there, there have only been five or six categories, like big, massive categories, like you know, marketing automation, Salesforce, you know, inbound, like HubSpot, like the very few. So there's a reason. So I agree, you don't need to be, but if you're going to go the right route of category creation, if you have something that you think is a new category, just not for the fun of it, but truly right. a new category, then it's a hard road and it's going to challenge you to be really humble, really authentic around it because if you like, for example, when we build Flip My Funnel, even today, we have done over, gosh, over maybe 12 conferences now. And even today, it's not about terminus, right? We yeah. could have flipped at any time, but it's even today, my keynote is not about terminus and we're booth like just like everybody else and our competitors are pitching at the same thing. Our sales team has to compete for every dollar just like everybody else. Now that requires a different level of commitment to it. And the reason we do that, we're not like nonprofit people. We're not trying to give away the farm here. The reason we do that is because we wanted to create an industry conference. And we felt that if we create an industry conference, there will be more people, more things at bats. That's going to give us the best chance to win as opposed to trying to play, you know, individual games and competing for like very small, finite thing in different locations, bringing everybody together, brought in media, brought in analysts. We just created a big industry conference. It worked out in our favor. For people who are not trying to build in like an industry conference or create a category out there, I think they need to create a figure out a way to create a ton of partnership programs from the get-go. An example of that is Bombara. Bombara is a great company. They do data, AI, uh, not necessarily AI, but intent data. Okay. They are partnered with every single market company out there right now. So every company that wants to have intent data as part of their uh, the way to help companies identify which accounts to go after, they are partnered with it. So Bambara by itself are not creating any category. They're not trying to go and market anything. They're just underneath all of these companies and that created a big channel model for it. So you got to figure out how you're going to do that because otherwise it is extremely hard to be a standalone product with neither a category creation idea or a partnership program. It's extremely hard to survive or get thriving. In it. So you have to figure out which battle you want to do. Standalone products, very, very few of them without a category can exist. Yeah, no, that's, that's so good. And one of the things I was thinking about when you talked about the conference, I think it creates a level of authenticity too, right? You're not in it. You're providing a service to everybody, not just promoting your product. And I think that just builds trust, which I think is another area that's, I think it's starting to discuss more about the trust of the brand, the trust of the founders, trust of the people. Yeah. What a great way to do it. Like all of this, think about Salesforce, HubSpot, Gainsight, Drift, Terminus. Each one of these companies, the only reason we are all able to build communities that are so independent of the organization is because the founder is the one leading. It's not a marketing 
initiative. It's a founder-led authentic movement. And if you're not doing that, then it's, it, it can be like, oh, I'm going to hire a marketing person and they're going to run a conference for you. No, you have to be in it and, and build it and recognize it and make sure that you have a clear path for it. It's not like, hey, I'm going to just tell somebody to run it. It doesn't work that way. Right. And that makes sense. And one of the things I've been kind of focusing on lately with the pandemic and, you know, businesses not shutting down, but slowing down, right? Taking inventory of what they're doing is the difference between a need to have product or service and a nice to have product or service. When the markets are flying, business is good. You're going to probably do pretty well selling nice to have products. All of a sudden now you're faced with, you know, spending is being watched or shut down and you can still sell a need to have product, right? Or, or service. So is that kind of the back way into tying it into a, a category, right? If it's a need to have, it means there's a gap somewhere within the marketplace, right? Well, the market is going to do what the market does. It's going to flatten out the curve and it's, it's orbit of time. The, the good and the and not so good, they're just going to be separated. It's just how markets work. That's what free economy is all about. Now, you make a really interesting point, Brett, around need to have the vitamins versus the painkillers, as you know, it's commonly also referred as. Right. And, and I feel like there is a clear need for vitamin. There's a reason why P vitamin businesses are out there. And, and there's no reason why vitamin businesses actually have to shut down. So if somebody, for example, we just acquired a Ramble Chat, uh, one of a, it's a chat providing company. Um, and we looked at that and this happened like four weeks ago. And the reason I shared that is because they're a, they were a four people company based out of Atlanta Tech Village here in Atlanta. They've been doing this for about a year. They didn't have like tremendous amount of revenue enough for us to like acquire and make sure. So for that business, what they recognized was chat by itself is not a full on category. So they needed to find a home somewhere. So they were always playing to that part and having integrations with the right kind of sales force, marketing automation platforms and others into figuring out like, okay, where can we become a channel partner for? Where can we do all these things for? So I think if you're sub million in revenue, they are a great example to think about like create the right kind of partners out there and figure out who you're going to be part of and what ecosystem are you going to support and double down on those ecosystems, promote them to get out there and figure out a way to be the best partner they possibly can have and the right opportunities will blow your way. So they were making a ton of business just purely based on referrals. Interesting. I think a lot of people are historically too nervous to look to channel partners, right? That it's a, it's not all mine at that point in time, which, you know, we talked a little bit off, off air before we started was, you know, selling into your network and then expanding to your network. And, you know, the, the revenue clock doesn't start until you sell your first dollar to somebody you don't know. I mean, I, to me, it just makes sense. Leverage the people, you know, that know you know the product and then eventually you can get to the folks that don't know you or the product, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems logical, but not many folks follow that, that process. Yeah, it's, it's all of this thing. I, I'll tell you a quick story of the first call I had, the first deal we closed, all right? So this is me and Eric, and we, have, we had an intern, Amanda, and we were on a call, and she had set it up. So me and my co-founder, we were on a call. And Gretchen, our first customer, she, uh, we, we did the whole thing, the dog and pony show, the slides, because we didn't really have a product uh, fully baked in by that time, like literally. And she's like, oh, that sounds really interesting. 
And I'm like, yeah, this is really, we're fired up. Like most founders are, you can probably feel it. Like they're fired up, they're ready to go. They feel like they got the best the energy, before, right? They, they got the energy, everything. And we have the same thing. I hope we still have that. And in the process, she said, oh, this is great. Uh, I'm going to buy it. Uh, how much is it for? And we had no idea <laughs> because we didn't even talk about it, right? So we had to put the phone on mute. And I, I turned to Eric, Eric, like, Eric, dude, how much did we sell this for? He's like, you're the marketer. You figure it out. I'm like, okay, how about 250 bucks a month? And he's like, fine. Okay, great. Unmute and say, hey, Gretchen, uh, how about 250 bucks a month? And she's like, she laughed and she said, okay, great. Yeah, send me the order form. Okay, sounds good. We hang up and we Google what is an order form. Right? <laughs> like, so it's, that's really where the reality of all of these conversations are. Nobody knows what to do, and that's okay. Yeah, and no, and that's that's such a great story, and I think very, very common. It, uh, and I've heard that that quite a bit. And I, I guess my my follow up question on that is: All right, so now you've had a few of these conversations, you're starting to figure out pricing. Is now how do I take that next step to formalize it or, or put a plan in place? Because right early on, you're just validating. You think you know everything. The more customers, prospects you talk to, you get a sense of why they want to buy. Obviously, the first customers saw something that yeah. was going to help solve a problem they, they were having and was willing to pay the price. So now how do you start to think about, like I said, formalizing approach or a strategy or a plan in place so you're not scattershot forever and you can start to maybe gain some efficiencies as you're you're starting to close in on that million dollar mark that's a great question brad i feel like one of the best things we could do is like figure out how quickly you can get out of the process i like it as quickly as possible so if you're a founder right now where you just know so much you just know you can answer every question in every way possible you can take people on journey and stuff like that and sometimes like i feel like i was so prideful in the first 100 customers because I could literally take a nap in between the call and wake up and answer the question and go take a nap in between the call. I have pictures from my founders of me napping between, like I was, because we were doing it like crazy amount of work and trying to get the early customers going. Uh, and I became prideful of that. And I remember recognizing this as, as a company and like growth is like, wow, we are now the bottlenecks. We don't, we, people can't say or tell the story with the same passion as a founder coming from part of Salesforce. Obviously I'm going to have some level of confidence and passion around it. But if the other person can't translate that into their conversation with it, we just, we're never going to get million revenue. We're never going to hit 10, 20, 30, 40, wherever we are now. And, and I think that was a really big learning process. So as quickly as possible, get you out of the process. Now that doesn't mean you can't listen to calls. That's, that, that's not the point. It's like, you shouldn't be the reason why they're buying. Because what I realized in the first early days is that people buy because of you. Like, right. people are, like they're trusting you. They're looking at your credentials and the first 10, 15 customers. But beyond that, it, it, you need to get out of that process as quickly as possible from the selling perspective, not from a process perspective, but from a selling, actual selling process. Yeah, no, that's really great advice. And, you know, as a sales rep, if they're buying from you, you're doing something right. So you want to have a, at some point a bunch of sales reps that are all having people buy from them. But if as the founder or as the business is reliant upon that to scale, it's really hard to, to scale that type of business. And so I guess that leads me kind of the next question as, you know, you are starting to look beyond. So I'm not, I mean, I have to bring somebody on 
and this is kind of a loaded question, would you say bring in a salesperson first, bring in a marketing person first, all the above, none of the above, or you know, what, what are some good questions to think about my business when I start to know that I've got to bring somebody in to help if I want to get beyond just myself? Uh, few, few, I, I got a lot of thoughts on it, so I'm going to try to table it and tell me where, where you want me to go deep on. I, I think companies should not hire a CMO until they're like eight or if not 10 million in revenue. It's uh, the reason I was because I was a founder. So it didn't really matter what my title was. So I said co-founder and CMO, but really companies should not. At that time, you need doers, executioners. And we, will, we can go in that route. Like, what, what does that look like? What does your first marketer look like? Uh, especially because we're selling to marketers. We, we're building this community. We needed a marketer. So we had a couple of people earlier on that. Our first real hire was a customer success person. She's our chief, uh, chief of staff now. Uh, at, at, so she's obviously gone, gone through a, a lot of great roles. She, she headed up customer success and now she's our chief of staff. And the reason we did that is because we want to make sure that we don't have a leaky bucket problem, which presumably every company has in some way, shape or form. And we're all, people always struggle with it. It's not that we're out of the woods. I think we, we still have some of that. Every company has that, but having great customer stories, that fuel is the best fuel you can put in the engine as opposed to uh, just creating new ads and new messages for it. You put a customer in front of your customer stories in front of other people, that they're going to sell faster. You're going to be, you'll get, you'll pass a million faster than you can ever think if you have 10 to 15 great stories of customers. So we want to make sure that our first, we, we have those 10, 15 stories baked in every single time we'll do an event like that. We'll record, we'll do all kinds of things around them. We'll turn them into superheroes. We'll put them on a pedestal. We'll do podcasts with them. We'll write stories of them, not a case study, but stories like real stories of how they transform their organization or their team or their marketing practice or whatever that is. And that changed a lot of our growth trajectory because people love hearing stories of people like them. Not right. From, uh, not, not from a brand. Yeah, that, that's great advice. And I do hear that more frequently now, which makes me happy to, <laughs> that they are focusing on the, the retention piece. Cause I think the default potentially, if you haven't been in that role before is well, we've got a customer. Now I've got to go get the next customer. And, you know, one of the sayings that I've been using, you know, lately, and I'm sure it wasn't original to me, but, you know, treat your customers like prospects and your prospects like customers. Yeah. And I was talking to, this is probably eight to 12 months ago, true uh, chief revenue officer. So she had both responsibility for sales, marketing, and customer success through all, yeah. she had tactical folks under each, but own yeah. kind of the, the approach. And she's like, you know what, that's a good point because there's probably some customers that have been with us four or five years that have no idea what our current offering is or what else we can do now to help them. Right. It was, Hey, they're, they're happy. They liked our product, but we don't communicate with them the way we should. And what I love you saying is, you know, the other way around, man, our customers are everything. We want to make sure, you know, we get your story out and guess what? That'll help facilitate the growth of other customers. Every single time, every deck, like you don't need a deck. You need a customer story, not a real deck. People spend so much time on creating polished decks and, and getting people to pay like thousands of dollars. And the, well, this word, this color, like forget all that, like scratch that. Just put the face of your customer and their story, and if possible, a quick recording in their voice, what they said, not a quote from a pretty graphic, but actually their recording of their voice, it will do wonders. 
for you. More than a data sheet and a, uh, another pretty little thing. Like it just doesn't, it, it just scales tremendously. And, and talking about customers and prospects is that I made a, almost a vow to not use the word prospects in any conversation whatsoever. And to your exact point, at once, uh, I think I was speaking at B2B SMX and I was, I asked like, how many of you like, like to be prospected? Like, and there were about a thousand people, like, you know, people started laughing, the nervous laugh, like, okay, well, how many of you uh, like, like to be like hunted or, you know, harassed or, you know, nobody loves that. I'm like, okay, well, let me ask you this. How many of you look at the number of emails or the kind of emails that go to customer, like how many times you send it and feel like, oh, we we're very careful. There are customers. We need to be very careful of what emails we send. Okay. What about your prospects? Like, well, what about them? And nobody looks at that. There are thousands of emails that go to you because we don't treat them as customers. So I said, imagine reframing that for your entire organization, especially if you're doing account-based, which means you got to know who, who your customers are and you, what your future customer looks like very clearly, which means you know they're going to buy from you either now or in the future. So they're either your customers today or they're your future customers. So imagine everybody's a future customer that's not a customer and think about like, would I send this to my future customer? Would that piss them off? Would that come across as desperate? Would that come across negative? And if you ask these questions and put to say that, are we sending this to our future customers, not prospects, but future customers, I think the tonality of our emails and our conversations, the kind of things we do will completely change. The only reason people get bad emails or bad outreach is because we think that they are nothing unless they respond. Right. And I can only imagine the number of pitches and emails that you get through LinkedIn. But, you know, my default response sometimes is, does that actually work? Have you got a customer to, to bite on, on this approach? And to me, it's just amazing the amount of poorly written or just, I mean, I'm not going to buy and I probably never will buy. And what I really think what I heard you say was, you know, all future or potential customers. So, be careful with how you communicate to them because you probably only get one chance, maybe two, if you're super lucky. And is that really back? Right. They would never tell you that they are pissed off. They would never ever like, but but at a happy hour somewhere, they're saying that I'm never going to buy from, from that team ever again. They're telling to their coworkers or, or other peers that they work with that are all influencing the next deal you're going to work on. And even worse, like this, this is the part that will actually hopefully will hurt uh, and get people bleeding a little bit and recognize it's actually happening. Uh, Jay Bear said this to me on one of the episodes I was interviewing. He said, with every touch point that you're having with somebody, every touch point, whatever that touch point might be, either you're building your brand or you're killing it. And yeah, that's great. recognize the power of that, like, oh, oh this, this idea of like nine touch emails with five phone calls, with three, like whatever the cadence is for people to do these things, Nobody's thinking about the fact that what is the brand return on that? And I think if, if you really start thinking about this idea of removing prospects and saying future customers and think that every touch point that I'm going to have, either I'm building my personal brand or my company's brand, or I'm hurting it, we ask that question. I think our conversations will be so much different, Brad. I really do believe that. Yeah, I think that's, that's so good. And I think it even goes back to what you were saying, you know, the 1% approach, right? It just kill them with volume. I'll hit the 1%, get my number, but you've alienated 99% of other future customers. And does that really get to the core of, you know, account-based marketing, right? You're targeting specific accounts. And one question I wanted to 
kind of dig in because even though I've, I've read your book, the question I have, and, and maybe I missed it in there, is if I look at certain accounts going after enterprise level, it makes sense, right? We're going to sell a multi-million dollar or it's you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. But what happens if I'm a founder of a business that's more transactional in nature, right? It's going to be really hard for me to, to target a thousand customers. So how do you, what's your advice or how to differentiate the two? I, I understand the, uh, the core philosophy, the principles are the same, but uh, you know, for me, you're going to educate me on this podcast is, you know, how do I think about those differently based on the, the type of product or the, the dollar amount of the product or solution I'm selling? Well, it, it's something that I talk about, as you can imagine, every day with somebody in some way, shape or form. And, and the way I look at this is, is more of this. It's not really about your customer as much as your customer's customer. So, for example, somebody might say, well, HubSpot, talking about the same example, would be a great customer. Not really, because HubSpot is selling to really small deals. Like they're, they're selling their customers are typically SMB customers, majority of them at least, unless they have a ton of enterprise customers that are starting to move to. So it, it may not work for them. But if your customer is, is selling a million dollar deal or a hundred thousand dollar deal, to them it is perfect, right? That makes sense. So for our customers are all like, are, are mixed back. It's not as cookie cutter as it, as, as it was in my previous companies that I worked with. Right. Uh, like Pardot, it was all SMB, very clear. Pardot for SMB, marketer for mid-market, and Eloquat for enterprise. It was very clear. I think in EBM is very different because it's not about uh, our direct customers, their customers, and what is the size of the deal they're selling to. So if you are selling, and so if you are a customer firm, as an example, I want to advise I'd give is that if your deal size is $50,000 or more, if there are more than three to five people in the decision-making process, if your sales cycle is over three to four months, then you are, regardless of use terminus or not, you are and have to do account-based something. Right. Because otherwise you're going to be burned out and you're going to spend so much money on things and activities that are not going to drive any results. And you're going to go back to that less than 1% category that we talked about, less than 1% leads starting into customers. So I think there is that, that's the bucket that I've started having like, seen thousand plus customers now at Terminus and also like unlimited, I don't know how many in, in the process of writing my second book on this. I just found over and over that be the truth. Now, if you have a transactional business where you're just selling it, let's say 100, 200, 300, $400 worth of thing, you may still do some ABM, but across the board, it's not going to be at fruitful because you just can't right. spend so much time, money, energy on that level of it. So it really depends on do you know your target list, how confident you are, and do any of those three things, the size of the deal, the number of salespeople in the process, and the number of how much time it takes for you to close it, if, does any of those three things map to it? If it does, I don't know how else could you do if not ABM. Yeah, spray and pray, right? Because yeah. I think it goes back to your original statement of, you know, sales and marketing suck. To, and, you know, I think I've been having this conversation for 20 years. You've probably even having it longer in the sense of, to this day, I still can't understand how enterprise sales and marketing organizations can't get together. And the, the conversation they're having is still the wrong one. It's not who should be doing what. It's to your point of, hey, we got a very complex account. We got to figure out how to work together to, to close these deals. And it's who does the SDR report to? Or, you know, part of my is it's the operating budget, right? The operating budgets aren't tied. We could have all these conversations and people are going to do what what they're to do. So, so 
tell you one, one more thing on that. I think one of the things that I feel like I've started to realize why marketing and sales don't function in the organizations I've been around is they have different numbers. They have different metrics. Um, and I think that's the number one killer of the alignment between sales and marketing. So if you have a new founder and in the sub million right now, I would say is that, all right, your marketing sales should have the same. Don't give them a lead marketing, a lead number and sales, a revenue number. Don't do that. Give them the same number and have the marketing get bonus or some sort of spiff on hitting the same revenue number. Celebrate together every time whenever you hit a revenue number, not just sales thing, but a sales and marketing thing. Today, we don't have a sales only meetings. We have a marketing meeting, which means sales and marketing comes in together. We talk about, all right, how many accounts are we going after? Okay, here are the 500 accounts we have. Out of 500, these are tier one, tier two, tier three. How are we going to go about it? Now, that's for a 250 plus people organization. But if I go back in time, it was literally all the conferences. We had a list of accounts in the city we were going to that we wanted them to attend the, com uh, the, the conference. That is account based. So, in some way, you're already doing it. You just have to figure out how you're going to wrap a program around. Yeah, I think that's such good advice. And you know, one of the things I've been advocating a bit too is, man, if you're smaller, you're more nimble. You can react quicker to the changing market dynamics and 100% agree with the shared revenue goal. Because I think, and I've had these conversations before is, you know, attribution, right? Marketing's not getting credit because it didn't touch. Well, this day and age with everything being online, offline, and the customer journey really being, you know, both, Right. Yeah. And you really are hoping to have attribution to both. And if you both care, then that means it's working versus, hey, this was a if you're or I'm long winded answer. If you're if your whole strategy is cold calling, it's going to be a long and winding road to, to try to grow revenue. I'm assuming yeah. you sit on that same side. Right. Yeah. Well, I think here, here's what I think. And as a marketer, it took me 10 years of therapy to come to this realization. Marketing's job is to either increase incrementally or exponentially grow sales, period. So in the early days or even later on, if you hire a marketing person who doesn't get that, then you know, that's the question that I would ask. If you're hiring with somebody in marketing right now, ask this question, what do you think marketing's role is? And if they say, oh, we need to create a great website and great brand presence and, and need to do great events and things like that, generate 10,000 leads a month, you, they, you, then they're not there for you. So that your job is to either incrementally or exponentially grow sales, period. Now, now you, once you clearly identified that as a role, and it, again, as I said, it took me 10 years of therapy because I'm a marketer throughout. I thought, well, I do all these things that are not directly attributable to sales. What about that? Well, you get to do, do those things, as I will say to my kids. It's like you get to have ice cream later on, like, you know, when you follow through and do all the things you need to clean up the house and stuff. So you don't, you don't do those things because that's your right. You get to do those things because that is part of what great, you know, having, uh, building a great brand and your job is. But if you can't do that, don't hire a marketer at that stage, at that, at that capacity. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know we're starting to get short on time and I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to follow up quickly on, you know, who you should, what questions asking for a marketer. But I think the same is true for sales. Because I see the default of many founders, hey, we're, we're starting to get some traction. I'm going to hire a chief revenue officer, a head of sales, or a couple sales reps. And 
maybe that's the right answer, but you know, I'd love your perspective too on that balance and maybe some of the questions you ask that salesperson you're bringing in, right? Or the head of sales, if you will. I think uh, sales is, oh my God, like one of the hardest uh, things to, to get in early. You can, you can create incentive programs and we've gone through and, and the same salesperson may not make sense a year from now. So biggest lesson is to set expectations from the get-go. You're hiring, you're learning, you're growing, you have a chance to become, like I would rather hire people who have never been a CRO to say you have a chance to become a CRO or never been an AE, you have a chance to become an AE, never been an SDR, you, okay, you're an intern now, you have a chance to become an SDR and bring those, those kind of things because you're learning. If you hire somebody right now who's super experienced, they're gonna start creating and architecting processes that you don't need right now. They're good, they sound great, but you don't need that. You need people that are hungry, that are smart. They can they can figure it out. They're ready to change pitch three times a day every time they because they're learning and figuring out. That level of hunger doesn't come when you are at an enterprise like a big company that's coming down. So too many founders, I think, the number one mistake is they're hiring very quickly at a higher level than actually hiring doers. Now that doesn't mean you get to do with them. You hire doers so that you can get out of the doing job and then right. start hiring later on. So there's a big distinction there. A lot of people say, oh, I'm gonna just hire a CMO, a CRO, or a CFO. You don't need any C-levels at, at least until eight to 10 million in market. Yeah, I think that that's so true. And you know, was, I had uh, Jeff Atkinson, who's the founder of Huckabye on a few weeks ago. And one of the things he talked about, he, they scaled quickly, right? Did a good job. Of, product that everybody needed. But then when they needed to scale beyond the, the network, they kind of stalled and brought on a bunch of salespeople. And he said, yeah, in hindsight, I would have done that differently because I didn't do that sales team any favors, right? They were maybe not had the right messaging or they didn't know how to talk to the right people. And if I would have pulled them back and given them more you know, leads to convert versus you know, markets to, to go after cold calling. Uh, well, I, I would also say is like, Brett, on that note is hire in twos. Like I've seen a real power in that hiring tools, not in ones, hiring marketing two marketers or two salespeople or two CS people at the same time or two people. I mean, there's so much power in twos because it just, one, it creates competitiveness, it creates bonding, it creates teamwork, it creates like, okay, what can we learn? It creates this idea of like, you know, that we're on the same level, same club. So hiring tools, not in ones, not in any like hiring tools, or at least the starting date of things being two. It creates wonders. It's so simple, but it creates wonders for your organization. Oh, that's a great advice. It's true because you may have got one of the hires wrong and you won't know that or it was a superstar and it's going to be hard to, to find additional. Uh, that's really good advice. So, all right. I know we're really short on time. So, Sangram, I really appreciate your time. Uh, before we close it out with my one final question, you know, what's next for you and the team? I mean, you can't have many hours left in the day. So, so what, what's your next challenge? What are you looking forward to? Uh, well, right now, I think uh, I, I want to make sure that we do three things as an organization and as an individual, which is create trust, create hope and care for everybody on the team, everybody with our customers, and just do that the best we can. Everything else will follow, right? Like that's one of the reasons why I do LinkedIn Live and things every week, because this is a time where you need to create trust and every organization, every founder, every person listening to this if they can come out of this by creating trust with their brand right now and themselves, they're going to be not not surviving, but thriving later on. So that's what I hope to do. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And highly encouraged. I'll have it in the show notes. You know, Sangram's also got a, a weekly newsletter that comes out. That's fantastic. Sally and uh, now I'm drawing a Please, blank. Sally. Yeah. It's fantastic. You know, the, the content you're, you're going to find is, is, is phenomenal. Check out the book. You know, I'll have a link to that. I mean, I think that's a great fundamental start, right? For people looking to understand, not understand it, but even how to do it or how to yeah. think about it called ABM is B2B, and we didn't even get into why you believe that there's no distinction between the two, but I think we, we covered. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you one parting shot with the ABM is B2B, and then I'll ask you the one final question. Well, I mean, it, uh, it, I, I, I didn't want to be the person who wrote the book on account-based marketing and, and went away. I wanted to like go and write a succession to it and say, well, we've matured. It's not just about account-based marketing. It's not just a marketing thing. It is a go-to-market thing. It is how marketing sales and customer success does it. And if you really take it, zoom out and look at it, it's really how B2B needs to function. You got to know who you're going after. So I come, came up with a title that is the shortest title with two acronyms. And my uh, publisher wasn't really like, what is ABF is B2B? I'm like, the people, if they don't know, they don't need this book. So That's yeah, a great okay. point. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. And that, the one last question I have for you, which I like to close all the interviews with is what is one thing you would personally highly recommend? And it could be personal, business, professional, whatever. What's something you're passionate about? Well, a quote that, that I have been saying more now than, than before is that becoming intentional is more important than being brilliant. And as founders and leaders, we think we have brilliant, we are great ideas and all these things, but gosh, figure out the one thing each one of us, your organization is good at, great at, that you shine and just do that. So be intentional about it. And for us, it was the community part. We were really good at bringing people together, creating community and putting that message out there. So we doubled down on that. And that may not be the same thing for you. You, you might be really good at product innovation and, and do something differently in a different way and, and more power to you. But whatever it is, chances are, as an organization, you have that one thing that you're great at. Figure out what that is and double down on that. Oh, that's awesome and a, and a perfect way to close it out. So Sangram, thank you again for your time. It was definitely my pleasure. And I think of the audience, there's a lot of value, you know, me trying to scribble notes down during that, that entire interview. So thank you. We look forward to your next book when it comes out. And like I said, I highly encourage you guys to check out the podcast, the newsletter, the Monday morning office hours with Sangram. <laughs> yeah, uh, I appreciate that, Brett. I really, really enjoyed this conversation as well. Awesome. You have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Ingram. Thank you. Take care.